This is cliffcentral.com. Well, across the country, we are currently experiencing many schools that are dealing with students, both past and present, who've had enough. For years now, there are a lot of high-profile schools that have been hiding a wide range of abuse behind heritage, reputation, or legacy. And um, one story among others, you know, you could pick them out. You could find one that you, you're particularly interested in. Usually it's the one that you went to school with, but one that got serious attention and for the right reasons was the story of Colin Rex, the former water polo coach who was at Parktown Boys High School. He was found guilty of 144 charges of sexual assault, 14 of assault. He was sentenced to 23 years in prison. Now, it's still over a year since I interviewed then 18-year-old Jason Daly, who was the whistleblower in that story. But Sam Cowan has done more interviews around this. She's also compiled them into a new book, which is called Brutal School Ties, The Parktown Boys Tragedy. What should you know about what is being dubbed institutional abuse? Well, she's joining me this morning live from her bed. Yes, Sam. (laughs) Freezing. I'm not even embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Sam Cowan, it's very nice to see you again, Sam. Uh, So listen, congratulations on the book. Um, You've obviously been using your lockdown time very effectively, but this story, this story has been going on for such a long time. And uh, finally, we had some kind of resolution because often in these cases, it feels like nothing ever gets done. Um, this guy's in prison, but what did you, what drew you to it? Um, what was your main reason for being, you know, the, the person who decided to put this into, into a book? Well, it's quite interesting. It came from somebody called Olivia Jazreel. Uh, she was raped by Bob Hewitt when she was 12. Right. And last August, I was doing a series of interviews with women who'd overcome insurmountable things. And she was one of them. And the reason I spoke to her was because when we talk about abuse of children or abuse of, um, you know, we talk about gender-based violence, but specifically towards children, we talk about it in statistics. So 600 kids are, uh, you know, taken by Boko Haram. That's terrible. Three, three children are raped every five minutes. That's awful. But when you've actually got a picture of the person and the, and the carnage that's wreaked on them afterwards, it changes your perspective. So, for example, with Olivia, she's 50 now. She'd probably kill me for saying that. But uh, she still baths in bleach. And that came out during the interview. That even now, she's either putting a cupful or a capful in the bath every single day. She says her goal is one day that she might only need to smell it. And that's from a rape that happened literally 38 years ago. So when we did that, she said to me, you need to do this with the Parktown boys. And I'd, I'd, I'd sort of, this, the story had been kind of in the background when it came out. I was, uh, my entire reference to Parktown boys at that stage is that I dated one in 1988 and 89. Um, But I, you know, I I remember hearing at the time of some of the initiations, but it just seemed so far removed and nothing like this. So I sat down with Luke Lamprecht from Child Protection Hmm. and I said to him, what is in this story that made it so awful? And I actually listened to the interview you'd done with Jason Daly, Hmm. um, which was very helpful indeed. And he said to me, have you seen the tape? And I said, no, I haven't seen the tape and I don't want to see the tape. And he said, uh, you've got to see the tape. So I saw 10 minutes of the tape. Now, the tape I'm referring to is the one that was taken off the CCTV camera that Jason, in fact, um, for those of your listeners who, who haven't heard that, and I strongly suggest they go back to that podcast. What happened was Jason um, 
Jason Daly was one of the boys who managed to, he was the one who managed to, I'm sorry, I've got a cat's tail in the middle of the show. He was one of the boys who um, was molested by Connor and he was the one who decided he would bring it to the fore. And the tape in question is what was seen by the boarding house uh, director and the matron, uh, which was Colin molesting boys on tape, on CCTV camera in the common room. Now, he knew that camera was there. So the horror of the video isn't that it's a brutal rape or a terrifying molestation. It's that it is molestation that goes on for four hours while there are other boys in the room. It takes place from boy to boy to boy. The camera is right there. Boys are walking in, boys are walking out. At one point, he stops touching one boy to talk to some others. Uh, he thinks he was asking to get him a Coke or something like that. Um, but, but the boys themselves aren't shocked, you know, which you'd think you would be if you walked into a room where a teacher had his hand down a child's pants. So when I saw 10 minutes of that, and I'll never unsee it, I'll never unsee that. And I thought, what I'm going to do is, this man is clearly a monster. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to these boys about what it was like surviving this monster and what heroes they are. But what changed as I wrote the book, Gareth, is that I realized that actually, thanks for that, that actually there are no monsters in this book. Or rather, there are no monsters in prison. There are people who should be. But there are just victims. They're frightened center because mm. everything that Colin did to those boys was done to him when he was in the same school at the same age. In other words, you know, the, they always say that these cycles of, of abuse perpetuate themselves in the next generation. I mean, I'm not willing to be as forgiving because I haven't looked into the, the, the story the way that you did when, when you wrote the book. And to be honest, I haven't finished reading the book either. So I've, I'm still some way into it. I, I, I hate stories like this. I mean, I'm fortunate enough, and there are very few of us by the sound of things, to have never been abused in my life. So I have to learn to be empathetic to people who have. And it seems to me like such a horrible, unnatural, stupid thing for someone to to do this to someone else. Uh, and yet, you have managed to find obviously more to the story. And I don't know whether you interviewed Colin Rex or not. You did. I went to the prison. I did. What, what was that like? Because to develop any kind of understanding or to even put yourself in a position where you're willing to understand and to listen to someone like that, because you're just, I'm sure as a mom and as someone who humans just generally react with absolute fury to child abuse. Um, you know, we all find it revolting. That's why most child abusers are killed in prison and they always get treated worse than anyone else in prison. Um, but as a mum, it must have been really difficult for you to do that. Well, by the time I got to see Colin, I'd interviewed quite a few of the boys. And what I had realized more and more was that the only reason Colin was able to thrive in that environment was because the groundwork is paved from grade eight. These boys are brutally beaten. Uh, that has stopped now. It's not happening anymore. But at this time, so we're talking about the boys of 2014, 2015, the ones who went in at grade eight. They're brutally beaten. They are humiliated sexually. Uh, one boy in the book will tell you uh, the story of his old pot because there's new pots, which are the grade eights, and the old pots, which are the matrix. It's a, it's a, it's a version of the fagging system. Hmm. And one of the grade eights told me how his old pot would try and force him into oral sex every single morning. If he refused to do it, he was made to do something equally disgusting. So one month, one day he had to eat floor polish. Another day he had to lick a mop. 
And he said to me, I did all those things, but I never did that other thing. I mean, the, the fear and the panic of a little 13-year-old. And I'm sure you remember being 13, where you're not a boy and you're not a man and you're not really anything in between. So in that kind of growing up environment, for Colin Rex to come into it and start molesting and touching and choking, it really wasn't, wasn't that big a deal in the boys' minds. And I stress that part. It was a big deal. But several of them said, we just saw it as another hardship. And the more I heard about Colin, and I spoke to Luke Lumpre extensively, and I said, do you think he made up the fact that he was abused? And he said, no, I don't. Because what had happened in the court was that at the very end, during the sentencing recommendation, Colin's lawyer said to Luke, um, uh, do you know that my client was abused at the same school and at the same, in the same way? And Luke said to him, if you tell me who it was, I will go after them as hard as I went after you. And Colin wouldn't say so when I went out to the prison, I went with his fiance, uh, Jolene, um, and she's an, an extraordinary woman, an extraordinary woman. A lot of people hated her. She was at the trial supporting him. She comes from an incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, traumatic background herself. She was molested at gunpoint at eight. Uh, just so, so I, you know, it was kind of ruined soul to ruined soul at that stage. So by the time I went up there, I had a, a better picture of how other people viewed him. So I had, I had the monster. Hmm. I had the friend because most of the boys said he was our friend and that's why it was confusing. And I had the fiance. So I get to the prison, which by the way is very prisony. Uh, it's just incredibly, it's, it's so, it's violating just to go and visit because you arrive and the first thing that happens after you've signed in and after you've, you know, put, um, I had to put money in Colin's account so he could phone out because you can't phone in. Um, and, and you get receipts for that. And then it's just, yeah. And then, then they search you and it's, it's whatever they're doing in the airport. That is a, that is, that is a nod to being searched. I mean, I, they really search you. And then we get to, you go through several doors. I mean, it's, the security is, is enormous. It's a maximum which, security. Which prison, prison is it? He's in Kutama, which is um, up Louis-Trichard Way. Oh, wow. And as I say, it's maximum security. Nobody's there for loitering or jaywalking. Yeah. And when I got through to the room, I sat there waiting for this monster to come through the door. You know, and, and out from the door comes out this young, clean-cut, Young man, very polite, uh, very quiet, incredibly um, respectful. And once we started talking, he said to me, ask me anything. Ask me anything. And I asked the hard questions. I mean, I started out with, you know, what was it like growing up, et cetera, et cetera. He said, ask me the questions. And one of the things I had told his girlfriend in the car was that one of the boys I had interviewed wakes up in the morning smelling and tasting him sometimes. And I said to him, this is what was said. And he said, no. He said, I, I, I touched their genitals and I, and, I, and I touched them where I shouldn't have. And, you know, and I'm sorry now. And I said, um, have you ever expressed remorse? And he said, well, I wanted to in the court. And he kind of waffled around about it a bit. And I said, but these boys are hurting. And he said, why? I'm in prison now. I'm being punished. And I said to him, one is still on suicide watch. And now we're looking at uh, 2020, the, these boys were, he was arrested at the end of 2016. He was convicted at the end of 2018. So now it's 2020. And I said, one is still on suicide watch. One wrote his matric, J, uh, you know, young Jason wrote his matric from a psychiatric hospital, as he said to you. Yeah. I said, these boys are not okay at all. And Gareth, 
he was devastated. He had no idea that it was still in their heads. And yeah, I, I, I know, I see the way you're looking. And I'm not being revisionist. He needs to be in prison. He needs to be there. I, I certainly don't think that Colin Rick should be walking our streets. Well, but he said to me, <clears throat> but one of the things he said is he said he didn't understand if he was in prison, why they were still sad. Listen, I mean, you made the case in a very short space of time for why this is a fascinating story. And I mean, you must have been, because I, I know how these kinds of things can be gripping and you're the kind of person who can concentrate for a long time. And you're the kind of person who actually pays attention to people and you, you're good at reading people. You know, you mentioned the, the fiance. You, suddenly there's the, this thing is so layered. It's so complicated. You know, you, we tend to think of child abuse or of woman abuse for that matter as being just, some angry, stupid guy or some drunk guy or some violent guy who's obviously got mental health problems and whatever. We try to, we try to put it into and compartmentalize it so it's easy for us to understand. But this is so complex. It's so, so multifaceted and it really does require a, a degree of, I hate to say it, but a degree of respect almost that you look at the story from everyone's point of view because otherwise you're not going to get the full picture. And you can only imagine how difficult it is for judges, for prosecutors, or for the parents of kids who've been abused to take it all in because some of it is unwelcome stuff. And the way you talk about this guy, I, I do almost feel sorry for him. But at the same time, I feel much more sorry for the victims against whom he of perpetrated course. these actions. So, so just tell me for a second, the boys that you interviewed – um, what is the what is the overwhelming feeling there? And and you you did start this off by saying that the the woman who was abused by Bob Hewitt told you that it would be a good idea for you to let the boys tell their story and to mm. to cathart and to release and to to express themselves so that they can feel like heroes rather than victims. Um, are they feeling like that? Your book is obviously helping. But are there some that have already got to that point, do you think? One boy has come to terms with it very well. Um, he is, he's done a lot of processing. He's had a lot of therapy. He has a very, very supportive family base. But that's not true of all of them. You know, we're talking four years down the line now. And one of them used to have a great relationship with his dad. And the relationship is now extremely strained. And I'm deliberately using as loose terms as possible because I haven't named any of the boys in the book. They've all been given pseudonyms mm -hmm. because they were, they were minors when this happened. And also the, they don't want this following them around for the rest of their life. No, it's, it's humiliating. So it's, it's, it's it is deeply scarring. And, yeah. that's, and that, is the, that is the prevailing feeling. So this particular boy who had this great relationship with his dad it's strained now, and the father doesn't understand why. And that's because his father's extremely homophobic, and he's afraid his father will think he's gay if he knows about what happened, so he can't tell him. So that sits between them all the time, all the time. The abuse these boys were, uh, the secondary abuse, it was almost worse than the abuse itself, Gareth, and, I'm, and I know how bad the abuse was. One boy um, was playing rugby at a new school, and the guy from the opposite team said, yeah, we heard you like to jerk people off, eh? And he threw the game. You know, they've been teased, they have been, uh, they've been maligned, they have been, even the teachers at Parktown afterwards were so awful. There was one particular teacher who 
um, outed one of the boys in class. He was off sick and the teacher noticed and said, oh, well, um, yet another one of Colin Rex's so-called victims is off. Um, oh. Others were, others were um, accused of all sorts of things. I mean, it is just they don't feel like heroes. Most of them feel guilty and ashamed and they wish it hadn't happened. Do you think and it's, do you think it's worse for – I mean, this is something that's just occurred to me now, but girls when they're abused um, – which is there's no comparison between whose abuse is worse, obviously, and I, I don't want to go down that path. But it seems that society is much less forgiving and much less tolerant and not much less empathetic to boys who are abused. It almost seems like, oh, well, you could have stood up for yourself. And there's this masculine thing that comes in, which somehow puts extra pressure instead of any relief on boys who've been victimized. It, it's it's really quite sick. It is quite sick, and you've hit the nail on the head there. So what happens when a girl is raped is the way people talk about it when they are blaming the girl is to say she asked for it. Mm. So she was drinking. She was wearing a short skirt. She's always been a bit flirtatious. Whatever you want on the list of thousands of reasons why it happened. Mm. The understanding is that it is not a good thing. Otherwise, what would you be asking for? But also the general understanding is that when a woman is raped, it's because she has driven a man to a point where he can't control himself and she is not expected to control him. It is, a, it is an understood concept that women are physically weaker than men and have to submit. The same is not true. The belief is not true of boys. And what a lot of these boys did here, exactly as you said, is why didn't you fight it off if you didn't like it? Why didn't you push him away? Why didn't you complain? Why didn't you talk to the teacher? Now, these boys also came from a school where when they had reported other abuse, it had been turned back on them. One boy had reported abuse at the hands of the matrix, and the housemaster said, don't worry, I'll deal with it. And this particular boy, several weeks later, was made to stand with his face against the wall with his legs spread while two matrix put two potatoes in a sock and beat him between the legs. So there was no way of, of speaking about this. There was no way of talking about this. Even to their Who own families tell? sometimes, right? It's interesting that they just couldn't. So many of the boys and, you know, the moms blame themselves and the dads blame themselves a lot. So many of the boys said every weekend, please don't make me go back. Please don't make me go back. But they wouldn't tell them why. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed. And they took it on themselves. that somehow that it was their fault that they'd asked for it. I mean, one boy, he was incredibly close to Colin because he said Colin had been his friend and he had encouraged him so much. And he said nobody had ever believed in him his whole life the way Colin did. And Colin would push him to do different sporting things and he would succeed. And I said, so when did the sexual thing become you know, when did it arrive in the relationship and did it change it? And he said, I just accepted that if I wanted someone like that to believe in me and support me, I just had to put up with that. You know, and, and, and that's the kind of thing these boys were dealing with. I just have to put up with that. So you can't tell your mom that. What do you say to your mom when you go home? What do you say to your dad? And also there was a lot of guilt about, you know, the fact that it was happening, but it was all happening. And, and, and one of the things that um, Ben says in the story is he says, there was one particular water polo camp where he and Colin Rex got forced into sharing a shower stall. And I've, I've always thought and continue to think it is barbaric that men don't have and boys don't have single shower cubicles yeah. and girls do. Mm. I really think it's barbaric. I think it's, it's just, it's as sexist, I think, as anything else. Uh, and so because of that, he had to share a stall with Colin and uh, Colin dumped shampoo all over his head and started molesting him. And it was quite graphic. I mean, it's graphic in the book. And I can say this because it's digital, but he says Colin was grabbing at his genitals and hitting him on the, on the buttocks with his own genitals. And so he kicked out 
and Colin peed on him and he'd peed back on Colin. Anyway, fast forward to getting out of the shower. He went through to the dormitory and he was very thrown by what had happened. He was absolutely, um, I mean, wouldn't anyone be? And he said, Colin came in and threw him on the bed and started dry humping him. His exact words, and I repeat them in the book, are he was pounding away at me. And he said he looked around the room and no one was laughing. He said, and, and he said for the very first time, he thought, I'm not the only one who doesn't like this. Because what would happen is usually Colin would be laughing and everyone else would laugh. There's another story about a boy who was pushed up against um, the shelves in the ball cage. It's where you keep all the, uni- all the water polo stuff. And they call it a cage because it's all metal. And Colin started dry humping him. And he said he wanted to cry, but he couldn't because everyone was laughing. So it was funny. So he had to pretend to laugh. And so when we go back to Ben, who said he was on the bed with his legs over Colin's um, shoulders being pounded at. That was the first time. And that was in the October. That was the first time that he thought, it's not just me. No one likes this. So there's that as well. If you don't all know what's going on or you're not prepared, or, or no, because no, nobody wants to not be the man, you know, nobody, no. it's different for boys. You know, you're becoming a man. You can't be the one who goes, hee, 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 he was nasty in the shower. Yeah, but it's, it's this weird, it, I mean, it's, it's this, it's the, it is this grotesque kind of overlap between almost a, um, an institutional acceptance of this kind of thing. And we'll talk in a moment about English public schools, and that's obviously where it comes from, because I, I want to hear the institutional argument in a second. But there's also this very bizarre sort of repressed homosexual thing. And then there's the, the straight male don't, you know, don't make a big deal out of nothing thing and the two overlap to create real victimhood it's very very this this needs to be explored by psychologists there's obviously a problem here and it's it's not just in south africa this happens all over the world no it does and i mean gareth you'd be terrified the military i mean i've got hold of me yeah you know the military in in in, uh, public service in all kinds of places i mean we it's it's you can find stories of women being abused by their bosses left right and center because that's what guys do in powerful positions i mean we've got presidents of the united states who've done that to interns but with men it somehow stays secret and when it does come out then it's everybody's shocked and horrified for a week and then they forget about it Mm -hmm. and it carries on and that i think is is the terror what i tried to do with this book so much is to showcase how no one's moved on no one has moved on except the school. And, I mean, that's another whole conversation. But um, this has tainted people for life. And if you can imagine, and, and, um, and there were other boys as well who didn't come forward, but imagine you were homosexual and this was your first experience. Where do you go from here? Well, you know, good. it's the same as when a girl is raped. Imagine that's your first sexual experience. How do you even start again? How do you even... You know, I, I can't even imagine how you process that. I just can't. It's, it beggars belief that boys are in this position. You, know, you go to school. One of the moms said to me, um, and in fact, phoned me after Enoch and Pianzi died in hysterics because she had said to me two months before that, does somebody have to die for this all to be taken seriously? And then someone died. Yeah. I, if, if you have this kind of thing happen at an early age, it can ruin your chances of ever having a happy sex life or ever having yeah. meaningful relationships with other human beings. Yeah. And I think um, one of the boys I didn't interview, 
but his mom told me that apparently they've had to talk to him a lot about the way he treats girls hmm. because he is a prolific dater. Hmm. I'm going to just use that term. So there are broken hearts all over Johannesburg, girls who don't know why they got dumped at the last minute because he has to prove to himself and to everybody else that he's not gay. So that secondary trauma then becomes secondary trauma for somebody else. And as much as, as I say, Colin needs to be in jail, he broke people with his brokenness because he was already broken. Okay. So but, what but, is the fallout from this then? But here it is because ultimately all that breaking should result in the breaking of a system which does nobody any favors. And here's where I want to bring in the institutional structures that make this stuff possible. And we, we you know, I don't want to beat up on Parktown boys because I'm sure no, that you've been accused of that everywhere. too. You've been told, oh no, we, why are you victimizing our school? There's so many other places and there's so many other things. And suddenly you're the evil woman who's trying to bring down tradition and bring down a, a place of, of, of pride and, and a, a, you know, all the, all the past alumni are probably saying, oh, that's Sam Cohen trying to rubbish our school. How dare she? She I, doesn't understand. Yeah, I don't want to go down that road because I do think that these schools also have a tremendously important role in society and that they do help many young men to turn into grown men and they, hope, they help them to position themselves in society in a way which can be very beneficial to them and where they can feel part of something at an early age. And it allows them to join up with other things later on and to have very successful, very happy lives. But why this incubated these relationships, um, disgraceful and, and criminal as they were, why it incubated them is what interests me. And I'm sure it interests you, too. I mean, I interviewed uh, Mr. Fuchs, who's written a book, too, about schools uh, recently. And he it was almost an, apolo uh, an apologia as opposed to yours, which is more of a revelation. Um, and he was saying, you know, there are these schools where he's been the headmaster and where he's been a teacher and he's, he's just seen positivity and he's only seen boys come out of it better than they went in. And, uh, and he's cited countless examples of, you know, the difficulties of, of what it is to be a teacher. And, and since he's gay, also to be a gay teacher and how he's dealt with that. So I would say almost it's helpful to read both at the same time because you do get, the teacher's side of the story and the good side of the story. But that's not what you were here to do. And you, you also weren't here to ruin anyone's reputation. That's been done by no. the, the people themselves. So tell me what it is about that, in, that environment that leads to this. So it's an, it's an analogy I use often. And I'm going to use it again because it, it really works. What's wrong with the institution is its inability to see what's wrong with the institution. So when Parktown Boys first started, and I'm using it as the example, a hundred years ago, hmm. it had the proudest of traditions and some amazing people have come out of that school. And I think will continue to come out of that school because I'm in no way suggesting the school be shut down. And I think what happens is you have these wonderful traditions. If you read their mottos and their mission statements and their visions, it's beautiful. It's about growing up strong and credible and true and, 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 you know, men with principles and values who can go forth and influence and, you know, be positive in the community. And all of that is great. And that's the traditions. And things like cadets, which was, um, obviously it's a military thing, but they still do cadets at Parktown. And that's also a tradition. Hmm. And it's about that discipline. It's about growing from being a child into being a responsible man. And not from a chauvinistic point of view or a, 
or a, I mean, I didn't use the words toxic masculinity once in the book because it's not about that. But what happens when the traditions are replaced with bad habits? So say, for example, the original fagging tradition was that you did your stuff for the matric, you made him tea, you warmed up his toilet seat. It was kind of a rite of passage, yeah? And for some of the people who um, had these uh, old pot relationships, I mean, one guy said his old pot would make him come down to his room in the evenings and cut cheese because he was running a thriving toasted cheese business from his, um, <laughs> from his study. And his, and his new pot would, would be cutting the cheese. Right. And he said, that's the kind of story, you know, you want to tell your kids. Oh, well, you know, when I was your yeah. age, I was cutting cheese. Yeah. But that's where the tradition holds, holds true, where you are learning respect and discipline. And yeah, it's cutting the cheese or whatever it is. Sure. But when you are forcing someone into a gang rape or when you are, um, and in fact, let's even take it down. Let's take it down to a respect issue uh, around eating. So at the boarding house, for example, the matrix eat first. Hmm. it's you've earned that right you know you've gone through the school but what used to happen is the matrix ate first and then they would choose who ate next and if they didn't choose you to eat you sit outside and you starve now that's not a rite of passage that's a bad habit that's a bad habit and that's the difference is what you're looking for is to keep those traditions but get rid of the bad habits so is it necessary for somebody to stand outside naked at three in the morning because it's cold and it's funny well, no. Is it great, however? And this also happened at Parktown to go on and on. Um, this was done as a grade, a grade 11 camp ahead of matric. And they did this orientation course. It took them like 12 hours and they had to, there was some geocaching and there was some climbing and they loved it. And that was an incredibly bonding experience. And there's a massive difference between that and having to stand in the quad with no clothes on. And going back to the destruction of the school, and this is the analogy I use, if you have a factory that puts out the best biscuits and everyone loves those biscuits, you want to take care of that factory. You want to take care of the machinery. You've got to replace parts sometimes. And that's how the biscuits keep coming out great. And sometimes you even improve the recipe. Mm. But what happens if you just look at that machine and go, well, it's always worked this way and it always will. And suddenly some of the biscuits start coming out with a bit of rust on them or a bit misshapen. No one is saying close down the biscuit factory. They're saying fix the machine because everyone still wants those biscuits. So when people say to me, you want to shut down the school, I don't want to shut down the school. The school is a fantastic school and some phenomenal people have come out of that school and will continue to. Mm. And some of the boys I interviewed, however broken they were, they still loved the tradition. It Mm. wasn't just a Stockholm syndrome. They loved the bonding. You know, they love going on those orientation things. They, they absolutely love the school song and all attending the sports matches. And they love that. And that shouldn't be taken from them, nor should the, um, the privilege of being part of something that's been going for 100 years, mostly extremely successfully. But you've got to undo that machinery, take out whatever's, whatever's causing the rust or the mm. leakage and replace it. That's all. Just needs repair. Do you think they've done that? I mean, can so you can you issue. say categorically that after a horror story like this, that maybe that school and perhaps other schools are going to right the ship? I know they have with the boarding house. So the boarding house is run completely differently to where it used to be. Um, under the Bossets, uh, Marielit and Chris Bossett, the uh, I mean, the I, I, they walked me through the boarding house, um, and it's 
it's as close to a hotel as you'll ever get. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. The bedrooms are beautiful and comfortable and, and the mattresses are nicer than mine. And <laughs> they've got a coffee station and a PlayStation and there's fruit wherever <clears> you <throat> look. There's, there's a, before the Bossets moved in, for example, you've got breakfast, a snack, and then dinner. Mm. And, you know, when you're, you know how you, I mean, look, I don't know if you're the same, but I have a teenage boy and I know from the age of 13, that child could just shovel anything. Just He's always hungry. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And now they've got, exactly. So there's a, there's a bread bin where there's peanut butter and jam and bread. So the kids can always make a sandwich. There is, there's a lot of camaraderie in that, in that hostel. And it's a happy, happy place. Um, other areas of the school. Well, teachers refuse to talk to me both there, then and now. I tried to interview the now headmaster who, uh, refused. Um, the assistant, the acting headmaster I approached and he was initially quite keen. And then he said, no, no, I'd rather not. And please delete all our correspondence, which I thought was a bit strange, but I did. Okay. okay that's his right. Uh, I tried to interview former teachers. Only one would talk to me, Remo Morabito, and he's already left the education profession. The others would not talk to me at all. They were very polite, but they all said, oh, we want to put Parktown in, in our back pockets and move on. Uh, There's almost a bit of peer pressure there, there obviously. So there's um, a lot of the stuff that's described in the book. Some of those teachers were there at the time. And the Harris Newpin report, which came out in 2018, which uh, the school, the GED, sorry, yes, GED, uh, GDE, I beg your pardon, uh, commissioned for uh, to see about the racism and the abuse and the initiation in the school. And it was damning, damning on all three counts. Um, they, uh, they were supposed to institute criminal proceedings that was what was recommended hmm. and uh, Steve Mabona education spokesman stood up and said at the time we will be pursuing all of this well Gareth we're now in 2020 nothing and you can blame COVID for a lot of things but these people have not been criminally charged they two of them are still in the education system uh, there, there is there is no and there's no remorse it's I want to move on with my life well you've left a trail of broken bodies and other people are having to clear up yeah. I got hold of the school governing body and I just said please would you talk to me and I submitted questions to people I wasn't trying to trick anyone uh, I know it's not the way like people like to do it but mm. I, I, I said please you know I would love to hear what it's like being a school governing body and how you tackle something like this and this is the worst case of school abuse in the country that I've ever been able to find how do you come back from that what do you do and they came to me and they said we've decided not to give you an interview but here's a statement so I got the statement telling me the changes have been made and things are better and in June carte blanche had done a piece on uh, on Parktown and they sent them the exact same statement word for word so they may not have meant to make it look like that's the photocopy that gets pulled out the file and given to the person who asks questions. Hmm. But that is how it looked. And even more disappointing was the response from the education department. I put in request after request for Panyaza Sufi. I said, these are the questions I want to ask you. Um, what happens now? What's no, it's, but it's not something, something he like can, this? it's not something he can grandstand on. So why would he give a damn? I mean, well, he's, he's a, he's a celebrity been, politician. In the book, I think I made 13 attempts. I sent emails. I've got read receipts from people. Uh, I called his personal number. Well, I was told it was his personal number, and he hung up on me. Um, I, I can't swear to it. Uh, it was given to me by a journalist friend. She said, just talk to him directly. You've Not got to bypass these people. Nothing. So, so it's funny. People talk about this conspiracy of silence and say, oh, it doesn't exist in the schools. Well, you know what, Gareth? Maybe they're right. But it surely does exist when it comes to talking about school. Because when your teachers won't talk, when your education department won't talk, when nobody is charging these people. 
I, I want to quickly, because I'm, I'm very aware of your time, and I know you've got a thousand of these interviews to do with the book, and, and I'm really excited that, that you've written this and that it, I'm sure it's going to do very, very well. But just as a contrast, this story of, of uh, Fiona Mallet at uh, Bishop's must mm. have been on your mind while you were writing this, because there is a female teacher mm. who, you know, was doing things with the male students at the school. Mm. Um, totally different response to most people. Totally different. So I, I remember at the time, because I was now doing the interview, so I was wholly immersed in children who had been sexually assaulted. And this came out, and I saw all the reactions, including I think it was a big blue T-shirt, making fun of the whole water polo thing. The reality is that she molested those boys. Whether they were keen on it or not is actually irrelevant. She was in a position of power. She was an educator. She knew to take the moral high ground and not do these things. That's the first thing. The second thing is the video and the stuff that was distributed and people were watching on Pornhub and saying, oh, this is, oh, I wish that was my water polo teacher or, oh, you know, I'm going to get my dad to send me to bishops. Those kids, and I go back to what I said at the beginning of the interview, try and have now a normal relationship with a kid your age, a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old girl or boy. And, uh, and how do you do that when you've had a 30-odd-year-old woman sending you a pornographic video of herself? How do you turn around to a 16-year-old and cop a feel? You know, the way we're supposed to find out about sex, which is a bit of fumbling and some excitement and, you know, joy, actually. Uh, so I, I, have, I have no respect. And the way that the, the school dealt with that was absolutely appalling. I mean, I remember seeing one statement that said she's getting the help she needs. Well, great. What about the kids? And then her attorney came out and said, well, we might try to decide to press charges against the boys for distributing pornography. Well, what a lot of people don't know, and I found out, so forgive me if you already knew this, is it is not, it is an offense to send anything to anyone under the age of 18, even though sexual intercourse is, is legal from, I think it's the age of uh, 16, uh, in this country for boys and girls, it is still illegal to send porn to a minor. So if she sent those videos to those boys at anything past one minute to midnight on their 18th birthday, she is up for mandatory pornography distribution charges. And this is the thing, these loopholes that people are trying to get through. It is wrong. We have to stop treating our kids as though they are things to play with hmm. because they're not. And you're sending them into the world confused. And this world is confusing enough. And I do get a bit on my high horse about this because this world's confusing enough. You're supposed to be given the tools at school to get through the world. We're talking to Sam Cowan about her new book, Brutal School Ties. We're talking about institutional abuse. We're talking about um, the, the situation so many young men go through in many situations all over the world, in many, many circumstances all over the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of left feeling a little hopeless about the whole thing, um, despite the fact that you, you've put in all this work and you've really gone to the trouble of speaking to both the, the victims and the aggressors in every case. You've, you've had some dead ends. You've had some frustrations with the, the GED. You've had some frustrations with teachers. But in the end, if you're a parent of a, a young man or woman, you know, your main job is to keep them safe as a parent. And, for these parents, they're the ones who I almost feel the worst for because mm. don't they, Sam, carry a huge amount of guilt over this? You, you already indicated that earlier in the discussion. Um, we, we know that you know there's crying and there's misery in these households, and it's not the parents' fault and it's not the kids' fault. Yeah. 
but they're the ones who seem to bear the hardest burden in all of this. So one of the moms I spoke to, single mom, uh, she said that if she had to give any advice to people based on what had happened with her son, her son was one of the boys in the video. And she said, if your child stops talking to you, and they always have, if their behavior changes significantly in that regard, she said, if your child on the way home on a Friday sleeps all the way through Friday and then sleeps most of the weekend, if they lose interest in doing the things they love to do, and if they keep telling you, I don't want to go back to school, listen to them. She said there was one point where her son left a note on her car. She was at a parent's evening saying, please, can I leave? And she said she just thought it was because grade eight was hard and also because they kept being told all these parents by a couple of different housemasters that grade eight's like this. You know, it's hard for a boy who's been living at home to go to boarding school. I think if I can, I, I can, if I can give you a good news story, one of the moms who read it said to me she felt less guilty because she said she did, she kept thinking everyone had worked it out except her. And she said, I realized I wasn't the only one. But also we live in a bubble a lot. And I speak as a parent now uh, more than an author. We live in a world where we drop off our kids at school and we assume, especially at a, 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 a at an upmarket school, and, and Park Town Boys is a jewel in the crown of the Karting Education Department, you assume that everything is going to be okay at school. And we don't just assume it and go home and bake cakes. We go off to work, especially as a single parent, and there are quite a few in the story. You go to work. You've got a hell of a lot to think about. So you hope that when your child goes to school, this kind of thing isn't going to happen. In fact, you're not even thinking about this thing because you don't think it will. So the only thing that I would say with parents is talk to each other. Hmm. You know, those horrible parent groups that get together and I hate them. They're really necessary because I'm in a position where if my son starts getting a bad math mark, I can find another mom and go, listen, is this person getting a bad math mark? And if we're all getting a bad math mark, then it is the teacher. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if it's just, if I have no one to talk to, how will I know? And maybe there is a possibility that some patterns might have been seen. But, I mean, they carry a heroic amount of guilt. And as much as we say, yo, well, parents need to stop just relying on schools. Well, schools also need to step up and do what they've promised to do, hmm. which is keep your child safe and prepare it, certainly from that time of the day to the end of school, for the new world. What, what was, the, and, what was yeah. the hardest thing that you had to do in writing this book? Was it going to prison to see? Because, I'm, I mean, I've been in, inside a prison. We did a show from Pretoria Central Prison okay. um, a, a long time ago, and it was just easily one of the most ugly, nasty things, especially that awaiting trial prison, because I will never forget how many people had to share a bed. Um, the smell, uh, j just the the – the ugliness of the whole situation, it, it made me there and then swear that I would do absolutely everything in my life to avoid going to prison no matter going what. Jesus. And or was it was it the school and was it this feeling that, you know, you weren't getting some of the answers that you were looking for? Was it speaking to the victims? Because that can be very emotionally draining and you, you almost have to be a psychologist. You don't want to hurt them, but you want to know the information. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask carefully and obviously being a mum, that must have helped um, a little bit. What, was it speaking to, was it speaking to to other people outside of this, uh, psychologists? I mean, the the investigating officer. What what was the hardest part of the, the whole thing? I think the hardest part was taking that pain and and taking it on because I don't believe I could have written this book. I know there are people far better evolved than me who can take what they're doing and separate it out. So, 
you know, psychologists you've mentioned a couple of times, and I'm sure that they have been trained or, ha- or know how to leave what they're doing at the, at the garage gate so they don't bring it home. I brought it home and I lived it and I ate it and I slept it. I had nightmares. Um, I couldn't, I didn't feel I could do it justice unless I went through it with them. And I remember having the worst time, having a nightmare where I woke up from, it was, it was at a school camp and the boys were swimming in the pool and they called me to the pool and they said, Sam, please come swim with us. And I knew I couldn't because it was wrong. And they were crying saying, please don't leave us, Sam, please don't leave us. And I woke up thinking, have I done these boys justice? Have I done these boys justice? Have I made it worse for them? Have I made it better? And luckily I've had some really amazing feedback, but my, but it wasn't even so much what was the hardest part. It was the, the hardest part was the terror of having opened these wounds and possibly made them deeper. And I hope I haven't done that. I really, really hope I haven't done that to anyone. Uh, I, I, as I said, the feedback I've got has been good, but you know, you, you, you run a risk when you do something like this of hurting people more. These people have been hurt. Parents, as you say, boys, um, all of the boys. Um, and the way, I mean, I call everybody, each chapter is the boy and wherever they are. And even Colin, I call the boy who went to prison because he was just a boy when all this started. And so for every single one of those people, I, I, what still sits with me sometimes in the night when I wake up is, have I done them enough justice to have opened these wounds again for them. This is the hardest thing you've ever written? Yeah, very much so. Um, <clears throat> it is the hardest thing. It's the best thing I've ever written, but it's the hardest thing I've ever written. This, this was next level. Hmm. So much sadness and so much waste. Yeah, destruction. Just so much waste. Destruction. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. Um, it, it, the book is not horrible. The book is definitely worth a read i would suggest that thank you even people who are just tangentially interested in this may want to pick it up just for the the roller coaster of an emotional ride it takes you on i i think there are probably parents that should make it mandatory um just in case because as a parent in these days you know there are enough predations upon your children's time and lots of people have spent way too much time with their kids over lockdown but (laughs) But, but you, you will want to, you'll want to know how this kind of thing can get so out of control. I mean, the number of, of, of abuses this guy was sent to jail for, the number of boys involved, the fact that this is going on to this day in institutions all over the world. It just seems to me like we need to be armed, you know, for, forewarned is forearmed. And, maybe it'll help us to put an end to what seems to be one of the most destructive continuous habits of of adult human beings and that is to ruin the lives of children instead of of do what we what we trust teachers to do which is to help build them up there you know to help create a future for them to give them confidence to give them a reason to feel healthy and happy and well adjusted in the world and here these you know this this person and probably many others in the story are doing exactly the opposite it's it's perverse so here's the tragedy of it. Do you know, especially in boys' schools, far less so in girls' schools, when you meet somebody and say, where did you go to school? It actually matters. You know, I went to Parkdown. Oh, brilliant. What year were you? You know, what was the rugby team like? I don't so, know about you. I'm suddenly feeling like I'm kind of proud that I just went to some Model C government school. With fuck all going for it. <laughs> but here's the thing. If you're, if you're, if you're, 
if you're, the school days are meant to be the best days of your life, right? That you look back and that yeah. was your carefree time, your fun time. How many boys can't say that? Mm. It's not right. Well, it's I not don't right. Know. Yeah, it's, it's, and we, we do. We, we tend to, especially white middle class people, attach a huge yeah. amount of importance to where, where did you go to school? Yeah. You know, it's like a, it's, it's exactly that. It's one of the things that draw us together where we went to school. I mean, and girls don't do it. Uh, like when, I, whenever I, when I meet somebody in business or, you know what I mean, and it never comes up where they went to school. I don't care where they went to school. They don't care where I went to school. It's a, it's, it's a very masculine thing. And, and it, you know, you should be proud of where you went to school. You should be able to say, I went there and it really taught me a lot about the world. And in this particular case, these boys learned a lot about the world they really didn't need to know. I wonder if it's become harder for people to say that they went to part-time boys' high. I would very much love it if the school would slice off the top of the problem, which is its desire to appear as though everything is fine. Make a keen breast of it. Everything wasn't fine. Some things are better. Some things are not. Here's where we need help. How do we create this institution into something again where it, you can say, I am proud to be a Parktonian? Don't take that away from the kids who are there. Let them have that. Mm, I love that because that would also fly in the face of those criticisms against your book and against people who are talking about this mm. as if they somehow are trying to impugn the reputation of the school rather than yeah. see justice done. Well, Sam, yeah. congrats. Um, you really are a multi-talented human being. I mean, you not only make people laugh on the radio, you not only are, are this incredible. Uh, I mean, I've, I haven't forgotten that you are also a massive uh, swimmer who, who decided to turn your life around and has, has just had this incredible yeah. journey. You're a great mom and now look at you, um, like investigative reporter slash psychologist slash bringer of justice oh. to the boys of Parktown. I, I love it. No, no. Well oh, done. Well done to you. Thank you. Thank You're you very, very, much. very smart. High praise coming from you. Well, it's good to talk to you, even if it is about something like this, which serious as it is, needs to be addressed. And I hope your next book is like toilet humor or something. <laughs> oh, flip. I don't, I don't want to do another one. And, and the worst of it is people keep sending me these things saying, um, have you do, have you done Pochester boys? Oh. Or when are you going to do Kirsten? I'm like, it's not like famous five go to Kieran Island, you know, Sam yeah, Cowan. Now you're, now you're the woman Sam who, Cowan, no, yeah. don't no, become, don't no, become that person. No, yeah. no right. I will not become that person. I'm done now. All right. Thank you for having me in your bed today. <laughs> thank you for sharing it with me, Gareth. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. This is cliffcentral.com.